Welcome to Louisville Reads. I'm your host, Dave Campbell, here on your community radio station, 106.5 FM, WFMPLP, Louisville. Black History Month, reviewing historian Tia Miles' All That She Carried, The Journey of Ashley Sack, a Black Family Keepsake. Interview with the author on the back half. Stay tuned. I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Greetings to all Democracy Now! listeners on Pacifica Affiliate Forward Radio 106.5 FM, WFMPLP in Louisville, Kentucky. This grassroots community radio station relies on volunteer power and your financial support to continue broadcasting the progressive, national, and homegrown local programming you've come to expect from Forward Radio. At a time when our public airwaves are being gobbled up by corporate interests, here's an open mic dedicated to local voices, civic engagement, and community empowerment. Please go to forwardradio.org and pledge your generous support today. Thank you so much. Welcome to episode 27 of Louisville Reads, previously known in 2020 and 21 as Read and Succeed. New title, new year, and new episode today for Black History Month 2022. Reading and reviewing the utterly thought-provoking 2021 National Book Award winner for nonfiction, all That She Carried, The Journey of Ashley Sack, A Black Family Keepsake by Harvard University professor Tia Miles. We'll follow this episode up with more black American literature next month with Hell of a Book, a novel by Jason Mott in March, and then review the 2021 Man Booker winner, The Promise, by South African novelist Damon Galgut in April, finishing up a four-episode series exploring the idea advocated by no less than 20th century American human rights activist Malcolm X himself that the black American experience exists as part of a larger pan-African experience that is both international, interreligious, and at times even interracial, even non-black in nature. A fascinating series of books. Please stay tuned for that. Speaking of staying tuned, if you enjoy Louisville Reads or enjoy any of the other programs you hear on 106.5 FM, please consider making a one-time or better yet recurring monetary donation to Community Radio as part of your financial plan for 2022. For a $20 donation, you essentially fund an entire day's worth of broadcasting. For a $50 donation, you essentially fund one hour per week of broadcasting for an entire year. Please visit Forward Radio forward slash donate to make a tax-deductible gift and be part of the movement. Also visit us on Facebook at forward slash Lou Reads, that's L-O-U, Reads FM. Visit us on Twitter at forward slash Lou Reads FM. Visit us on Instagram at forward slash Lou Reads FM. Follow our YouTube and SoundCloud links to archived episodes for both Louisville Reads and the former Read and Succeed, and leave your thoughts and comments. We'd love to hear from you. This is Louisville Reads. I'm Dave Campbell. The 2021 National Book Award winner for nonfiction, All That She Carried, The Journey of Ashley Sack, A Black Family Keepsake, by Harvard University professor Tia Miles, is exactly that, nonfiction. It could also be reasonably argued that the text leaves such a deep narrative and emotional impression on the reader because it is just that, entirely nonfiction. In the early 2000s, a cloth sack, now enshrined at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., surfaced at a flea market in Nashville, Tennessee. 
The sack itself visibly bore age as well as stains, and textile materials and patterns now dated to mid-19th century coastal South Carolina. What haunted the buyer, however, who paid only $20 for the item and immediately turned it over to professional historians, was the message embroidered in simultaneously sparse but spiritually powerful American English and loosely organized into the shape of a heart across the front of the sack. The message was as follows. My great-grandmother Rose, mother of Ashley, gave her this sack when she was sold at age nine in South Carolina. It held a tattered dress, three handfuls of pecans, a braid of Rose's hair. Told her it be filled with my love always. She never saw her again. Ashley is my grandmother. Signed, Ruth Middleton, 1921. In 2016, Central Washington University anthropologist Mark Oslander published peer-reviewed research using census reports, wills, newspaper announcements, legal documents, and pre-emancipation inventory records, tracing the sack, now known both formally and informally as Ashley's sack, as well as Ashley herself, to a wealthy, white, Charleston merchant and planner named Robert Martin, who died in 1852, after which, it is historically assumed, Many of the enslaved persons on his plantation were separated and sold at auction, including the nine-year-old Ashley being separated from her mother Rose. Ashley, armed with the sack and her mother's eternal love, clearly endured, giving birth to her own daughter Rosa after the Civil War, whose own daughter was the Ruth Middleton that transcribed the oral histories of her mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother in the embroidery now found on the sack itself. Ruth Middleton died of tuberculosis in 1942, but not before passing Ashley's sack to her daughter, Dorothy Helen Middleton, who herself passed away in 1988, leaving the sack to consignment, obscurity, surprisingly not destruction, before being discovered, professionally curated, and now enshrined as a centerpiece exhibit in the United States of America's National Museum. The story of and written on the sack of a young African-American child being separated from their mother under the pre-Civil War American slave system is, tragically and unfortunately, not rare in American history and an event attested to in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, in the historical record. What is historically, or at least archaeologically, rare, however, what Dr. Miles argues gives Ashley Sack a historical and archaeological significance, worth publishing a National Book Award-winning text about, is that in an era and sub-demographic of American history that doesn't even have census data before 1870, and little to any physical artifacts outside of iron chains before 1865, Ashley's sack is one of the most complete and preserved historical artifacts the African-American community has, outside of its own existence, of one of its most defining characteristics. Love. Or more specifically, as Tia Miles argues, maternal love. The passing of all that one is, both mentally, physically, and spiritually, from black mother to black child. Miles argues even deeper between black mother and black daughter and an artifact of the continuum of faith, hope, memory, and strength maintained through the maternal lines in the black community, as it's already attested to in black literature spanning from Toni Morrison to the North American slave narratives of the late 18th century. Using the narrative of and on Ashley's sack, Dr. Miles engages in what is essentially an extended chapter-by-chapter -chapter academic meditation, she is a Harvard-based academic, by the way, on each recorded content of the sack. The tattered dress, the pecans, a braid of Ashley's mother's hair, the sack itself, the embroidered message itself, and in particular the line, quote, told her it be filled with my love always. Miles' theoretical methods are at first pass thoroughly postmodern and deconstructive. 
openly referencing the academic, some might argue radical works, of Pan-African black and feminist anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians, such as Michelle Rolf Trulot, Elizabeth Whalen Barber, Marisa Fuentes, and Sadia Hartman, all laboring to not only find the history of American slavery in the already mentioned scant archival record, but the history of American slavery as told from the perspective of the enslaved African person themselves versus their European or American enslavers. Deeper still, but closely aligned to this impetus, Miles uses her reflections on Ashley Sack to lay the foundations for a rigorously black-centric view of the American historical archive, one less indebted to the current altogether binary intellectual paradigm between mind and object in Western thought established by French philosopher René Descartes in the early 17th century, and one more indebted to a view of objects by people who themselves were once viewed as objects, and how an object from the past that exists in the present binds not only time together, but also binds the object's creator and his current steward in an emotional, borderline mystical relationship Miles labels as materiality. Despite how early 20th first century these ideas may sound, the reality is human beings have been doing this for almost all of recorded history. Once the early Christian community had completed its migration from sociocultural outcast in Jewish and Roman society to full sociocultural equity under Constantine the Great in the 3rd century AD, it too began an essentially ongoing, at times admittedly excessive, archaeological and academic program centered around deriving the maximum amount of individual and institutional meaning and identity out of basically a few objects a program that in many ways echoes the same process undertaken by Christianity's Jewish patriarchs two millennia prior, after they migrated from political and economic slave, or at least client, to economic peer of ancient Egypt. Regardless of how one views Ashley Sack, be it academic or emotional, historical or simply heartwarming, black or white, or a mix of all the above, somewhere in the most prestigious museum in the United States, alongside the original star-spangled banner and the Apollo 11 lunar capsule, is stored a simple linen sack passed between a mother and daughter, both enslaved, both soon to be separated forever by one of the most callously and grotesquely inhumane systems any nation, free or otherwise, has ever instituted in human history, and on the sack and in the sack were permanently imprint, quote, it be filled with my love always, end quote. Every human being has, at one time or another in their life, had at least something in their possession, a photo, a letter, a textile, etc., passed down to them by at least one generation above, and linking them in the present to loved ones in the past in a near infinite amount of imaginative, intuitive, and positive ways, no matter how negative or counterintuitive the past may have been. If America is to properly steward its material and archival inheritance from its past generations, including their messages about what it is that represents the best and most timeless of what we can be, we can, Dr. Tia Miles argues, look to Ashley Sack as one of its finest examples. This is Louisville Reads. I'm Dave Campbell. This next portion is an interview with Dr. Tia Miles and Dr. Tamika Brown-Nagan, Dean of Harvard University's Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Interdisciplinary Studies. The interview was conducted in July of 2021 about Ashley Sack, a few months before Dr. Miles won the National Book Award. Excellent interview covering the entire scope of the text. To learn more about the Radcliffe Institute at Harvard University, please visit radcliffe.harvard.edu. To learn more about Louisville Reads, please visit us on Facebook at forward slash Lou Reads FM. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Tamiko Brown-Nagan, Dean of the Harvard Radcliffe Institute. I'm pleased to welcome you to the second of our summer book talks. Before we begin, I want to take a moment to acknowledge members of the Radcliffe Institute Leadership Society and all our annual donors. 
Your generosity keeps Radcliffe programs like this one free and open to the public, and we thank you. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by my distinguished colleague, the historian Taya Miles, who'll discuss her new book, All That She Carried, The Journey of Ashley Sack, A Black Family Keepsake. Taya is a Radcliffe alumnae professor and a professor of history in the Harvard Faculty of Arts and Sciences, where she directs the Charles Warren Center for Studies in American History. Taya also is a member of the faculty committee of the Presidential Initiative on Harvard and the Legacy of Slavery, which is anchored at Radcliffe. And I'm so glad for this opportunity to discuss a topic that is related to the work of that initiative. In addition to all that she carried, Taya is the author of five other books, including The Dawn of Detroit, A Chronicle of Slavery and Freedom in the City of the Straits, which won the Frederick Douglass Book Prize, among other awards. And she's received numerous other honors, including a MacArthur Foundation Fellowship. Harvard's President Emerita and Radcliffe's founding dean, Drew Kilbin Faust, has reminded us, to quote her, that slavery was not an abstraction, but a cruelty inflicted on particular humans. We name the names to remember those stolen lives. Drew made those remarks at the dedication of a plaque naming Titus, Venus, Bella, and Juba, four people who were enslaved at Wadsworth House on Harvard's campus. Nearly a century earlier, in 1921, Ruth Middleton did something similar. She named Rose and Ashley, her enslaved great-grandmother and grandmother, respectively. Ruth recorded their stories in hand embroidery on a sack that Rose had given Ashley, fearing that the nine-year-old girl would be sold away following the death of their legal owner, Robert Martin, in 1852. We learn from Ruth's inscription that Rose and Ashley were indeed separated in the disposition of Martin's South Carolina estate and that they never saw each other again. In all that she carried, Taya traces the family history of Rose, Ashley, and Ruth, in doing so, she recasts the broader story of United States and of African-Americans from the 17th century through the 20th, drawing important connections to our present. I'm delighted to have Taya here with us today to share from this powerful work. Now, it's my pleasure to give the virtual floor to Taya Miles. Thank you so very much, Dean Brown-Nagan, and thank you for inviting me to have this conversation with you and with the Radcliffe community about my new book. I'm very excited to be here. I want to start at the beginning. Ashley Sack is a remarkable family record and a piece of history. How did you first learn about the Sack's existence and what questions were you hoping to answer by making it the subject of a book project? I first learned about the Sack in an unusual way. I did not learn about it from um, a historical record or from a historical monograph. I learned about it while I was at an environmental history conference in Savannah, Georgia. I had given a talk about some other research that I had been doing on haunted places in the U.S. South. Hmm. And after the talk, a local journalist who was a retired marine biologist came up to me. He waited at the end of a very long line, actually, um, 
and was finally standing alone and came up and asked me if I knew Ashley Sack. I thought his language was interesting. <laughs> he was asking me if I knew what seemed to be an object. And I told him that I didn't know this thing. And he told me that I had to see it. After the event, Ben Goggins, the journalist and uh, retired scientist, started emailing me. He emailed me that very night. <laughs> and he sent me links to images of the sack. He sent me links to his own writing because he had been one of the first to hear about the sack in the local area when a Middleton Place curator came to Savannah and presented about it. And he, in his various emails, really urged me to think about a number of interconnected things, including loss and survival and even, even environmental threat, because he talked about the flooding that was taking place around uh, St. Simons Island and around Tybee Island in the Savannah area. So once I did see the sack, both in image and then finally, and especially in person, because that is when it really gripped me to Miko, when I saw it in person. Once I finally saw the sack, I felt compelled to write about it. It was like nothing I'd ever seen before in uh, the archives of enslavement, the material culture of enslavement. It was so beautiful and terrible and concentrated and real that I almost felt like I could fall into it. Mm. And so uh, I, I changed my plans for the book that I wanted to write next. I decided that I uh, needed to write about this book uh, with a great deal of gratitude to that journalist in Savannah. And I wanted to try to answer first the most basic questions of um, who are the people who are mentioned in the embroidered uh, writing on the sack? And what were their lives like? And what was the context of their experience? And then beyond that, I wanted to ask questions about the sack itself, where it was made, when it was made, who made it, and what were the details of its material, manufacture, and use in reality? And these questions led me to larger questions about how the story of the women and the story of the sack might enable us to see more clearly or more deeply or uh, with greater depth or uh, with greater breadth, the experiences of enslaved Black women, which are so hard to get at through the written records. Wonderful. That's a great story about the conversation with the journalist. And we all thank him for leading you uh, to the sack. Certainly the perfect person to write uh, this story. So I want to ask you about um, the type of book it is. All that you carried is written for a broader audience than many uh, in academia are accustomed to speaking to. You received a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities Public Scholars Program, and that grant required you to write the book in a way that translates uh, scholarly ideas for audiences beyond academia. So you were following uh, that mandate. And yet the question is, what made you want to write uh, a public history? And how did your desire to write a public history shape the way you thought uh, and wrote about the sack? 
Thank you for that question, Domingo. It's a wonderful question. It's so fitting for this project. I consider all of my books to be public histories. And by that, I mean that I have taken up my various projects with an intention of having the work be usable, mm -hmm. having the work be applied to various questions or problems or, or needs of our contemporary everyday communities. In addition, I have felt that the public history framing of my work has meant that I should work collaboratively with others who have, uh, in many cases, much more knowledge than I would have or than an academically trained scholar might have of a particular object, item, question, or place. And I also think that public history needs to be widely accessible. It needs to try to speak to not just one audience, actually, but multiple audiences. It needs to try to speak in the language and the languages that uh, would be received by those audiences. And it needs to do work, you know, ideally in the best interest of the public. Hmm. But even though I think of all of my books in this way, your question was asked because this book was different for me. When I saw the sack, my own reaction to it was much more emotional and even much more internally dramatic than my own reactions to other projects that I had worked on. And as I began to talk to curators who had worked with the SAC and to read the work of scholars who had begun to research the SAC and write about it, it became clear that this was not just an idiosyncratic reaction. This object seemed to pull lots of people into it. And it, it seemed to encourage many people to just pause and to reflect and even to express their own feelings about the story on the sack itself, as well as stories in their own family's histories. So for example, I have heard people say that when reading the words on the sack, they were sent right back in their own memories and lives to a moment of personal separation from the family. So this object was connecting with people in a way that was special and that was rare. And so telling its story and telling the story of the women who packed it and handed it down and carried it and embroidered it had to be a story for the public. It feels like it is an object that is meant for people to be able to access and to think about and to learn through and to even feel through, that is to experience their emotions through. It's a conduit in many ways. And so the very nature of the thing itself pointed me even more in the direction of public history than I had already um, been moving. And so I did apply for the NEH grant that you described because I thought that, um, First of all, I needed to have a sense of kind of affirmation and confirmation that this was a project that was doable and that was doable by me. And this is something that I think 
grants can do and fellowships can do in perhaps a unique way when they can affirm or the grant writer, they can affirm for the person proposing a project that there are other people who are expert in their fields, who have read the questions, read the hypotheses, and are willing to say, yes, we think this is something that should be pursued. So receiving that grant was very important for my confidence in taking out the project that was really difficult. Mm. And that by that time I had learned uh, some other scholars had considered, but decided not to take up. For those just joining us, this is a 2021 interview with Harvard University Professor of History, Dr. Tia Miles, winner of the 2021 National Book Award for Nonfiction for the work, all that she carried, The Journey of Ashley Sack, a Black Family Keepsake. This interview about that text was moderated by Harvard's Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, whose stated mission is to foster interdisciplinary research across the humanities, sciences, social sciences, arts, and professions. To learn more about the Harvard Radcliffe Institute, please visit radcliffe.harvard.edu. That's R-A-D-C-L-I-F-F-E dot harvard.edu. To learn more about Louisville Reads, please visit us on Facebook at forward slash Lou Reads. That's L-O-U Reads F-M. So, so let's talk about uh, some of those difficulties, Taya. Um, so you have this wonderfully evocative uh, object, artifact. But part of your task as an historian was to find Rose and Ashley and Ruth in other uh, historical records. And this is complicated. Uh, complicated by what you've called the conundrum of the archives, which is that we have markedly fewer records about people of color, about women, about other socially marginalized groups throughout history. And so talk to us about how you navigated those gaps, uh, how you interpreted the absences uh, in the archives. What other sources did you turn to? Well, I mean, right, Tamika, we have many fewer sources in the histories of Black people, people of color, women, uh, other marginalized groups, then we have about, let's say, mainstream central figures in US history. That's just a fact and uh, a reality of the nature of this work. But in addition to that, we also are missing sources for every single aspect of history. I mean, as you know, doing historical work is all about trying to find the pieces that will help us to kind of piece together a facsimile of what took place in the past. We can never fully achieve it, no matter what our subject matter. And in the case of African-American people, indigenous people, and their experiences of enslavement, that inability to reconstruct the past wholly and fully really stands out all the more. And so this is a topic that, that people in our fields continuously talk about and try to articulate and try to put language to the issue of how the archival repositories where records are saved and organized and preserved and to which historians and other scholars turn have severe deficits when it comes to many groups. So what do we do in this situation? Um, we could decide, well, there's just not enough there. We won't be able to put together 
a convincing argument or, or piece together a full picture. So we might as well just put that to the side and choose a topic that will be more reliable as we pursue the evidence to explore it. But if we were to do that, what would we know about Black women in this period or about Native American women in this period? What can we find out about enslaved people? Very, very little. Or what we found would really be predefined and circumscribed by those who had the legal power, the economic power to make and keep records. Typically, those who owned Black people or those who owned Indigenous people as their slaves, as their property. That is a serious, serious problem. Yeah. It's a heartbreaking problem to feel that we are trapped, that we would be trapped by the words of those who possessed our ancestors. And yet, those words make up a good portion of um, the scanty evidence that we have, and I, I feel that we have to turn to them. And so I tried to do that in this book. I tried to turn to um, the more traditional records, but that is not enough. We would be doing a disservice to our subjects if we were to let enslavers and slaveholders speak for the enslaved. We can't do that. It's just wrong. It's just ethically wrong. And so we, by necessity, must turn to other kinds of sources, to a range of sources. We have to think creatively. And luckily, the real challenge of this project was also the gold in this project. I just had a sack to work with, basically, a sack with some beautiful but very spare lines stitched onto it. And the work of a handful of other scholars who had begun to piece it together, also based on the sack and some um, contextualizing documentary evidence. That limitation forced the kind of creativity that I never would have arrived at if I had had, you know, 300 or even let's just say 10, oh, five. <laughs> I just say five uh, documents about this family. And um, this this push toward thinking more openly, more broadly, thinking about adjacencies and what stands next to and around the document and the story is what led me to look very closely at the narratives of enslaved Black women, to look very closely at letters written by or dictated by enslaved people who had nothing to do with this sack, but could help me to open up its story. And also to look very closely at material culture, at handicrafts, and even contemporary art by African-American artists, which include a number of associations and connections with the story of Ashley Sack. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Taya, I'm listening to you talk about this, this um, project, the challenges of it. And, you know, you're gifted, creative historian and not everybody can actually um, you know construct this kind of compelling story from a record uh, the record that you had which was limited and so I wonder and this is partly for benefit of you know um, 
students who are studying history um, and others, can you talk about what your guiding principles were um, in filling in those gaps? Or you know, if we, if we think about the story as a puzzle, how did you construct the four corners? Uh, what are the boundaries? I love that, Tamiko. I love it. And, you know, I'm actually terrible at puzzles. Uh, during the pandemic, one of my daughters became puzzle obsessed. And she put together these, you know, thousand, I don't know how she did it, these thousand word puzzles all across the dining room table. I would come in and look at, look at what she was doing and just ask, where did you begin? How did you do this? I had no idea. So I love it that you, you phrased the question in that way. Um, what are my corners? Okay. So the sack is at the middle and at the corners are larger contextualizing contextual kinds of questions. Like what was the experience of black women in the early to mid 19th century? That question can be like a pin holding down one corner of the puzzle. And we do have information that can help us to get at that question. Again, it's not going to be everything that we want. It's not going to be full enough. But we have, again, as I mentioned earlier, the narratives of enslaved women. We have letters. We have photographs. We have as told to stories. We have oral histories that can help us to pin that down, down and fill it out. And then another corner of the puzzle would be the layered histories of places, starting from the nearest place to the sack, and then stretching out to um, the, the place at the farthest point from the sack, but that still has meaning for it. Hmm. And so for me, that was thinking about Charleston, it was thinking about the interior of South Carolina, the US South, the United States, and even to an extent, thinking about global questions. That's not my area, I'm not a, a global historian, but of course the story of cotton is a broad one. And I think the, the story of a woman who was determined to save someone's life, to save her child's life, when the possibility, the possibility of doing so seemed so far out of reach. That is a global issue right now, I think, in our current moment of climate change. So that's another corner of the puzzle, thinking about place and broadening that out. Another corner of the puzzle, and this, maybe this is surprising, um, this is more of an American studies method. And I am trained in American studies and people who have taken American studies courses, you mentioned students to make out students in American studies who are listening to this, I think will feel that this makes sense with what it is that they have studied and how it is they raise questions. Another corner of the puzzle, is actually Black women's contemporary theorizing about the history of Black women and Black people and about slavery. Hmm. So in this corner, I would put items like um, Saidia Hartman's theorizing about slavery in the archives. I would put items like um, Alice Walker's writings. I put items like um, novels that can tell us about the experiences of enslavement in a way that is certainly imagined, but that can get at an emotional or interior kind of truth 
about the experience that we can't access through historical documents. So that's another piece of the puzzle, looking at um, contemporary Black women's creative work, written work, and also visual work. And another, another uh, corner, I only have four corners, right? So for the, fourth, for the fourth corner of this puzzle, I would say secondary literature in the fields that surround the SAC. And so for me, that included object history, it included African-American history, it included a category of thinking about things, kind of a, a philosophical category. It included material culture history, black women's history. And let me just add a, just a, a little footnote to that last point about black women's history. I'm here in this corner of the puzzle where I'm talking about secondary literature, a really important idea is taking black women's accounts of their own lives as theoretical analysis of their lives and their time periods. And this notion comes from the secondary work of looking at Black women as intellects and as uh, intellectual historians of their own times and of past times. For those just joining us, this is a 2021 interview with Harvard University Professor of History, Dr. Tia Miles, winner of the 2021 National Book Award for Nonfiction for the work, All That She Carried, The Journey of Ashley Sack, a Black Family Keepsake. This interview about that text was moderated by Harvard's Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, whose stated mission is to foster interdisciplinary research across the humanities, sciences, social sciences, arts, and professions. To learn more about the Harvard Radcliffe Institute, please visit radcliffe.harvard.edu. That's R-A-D-C-L-I-F-F-E dot harvard.edu. To learn more about Louisville Reads, please visit us on Facebook at forward slash Lou Reads. That's L-O-U Reads FM. Let's talk about material objects as windows into the past. You you said in your reading that um, that might seem like a counterintuitive move. Um, and I imagine that a part of the reason you say that is because today we have so many objects. We have so much stuff. Let's use that word. Uh, I mean stuff. We have all of these uh, possessions, so much so that there are whole genres uh, of books and television that are dedicated to helping us manage um, the volume of things we've accumulated. And so against that backdrop, I wonder if you could talk about what makes material objects such a rich guide to people's lives, to people's values throughout history, and particularly for uh, marginalized people? As you asked that question, Tamika, I was thinking about all of those shows, some of which I, I have actually watched a, a fair amount of that are about organizing your things, right? You know, how to roll your clothes and you know, put, put them in the drawer in the proper way. We have a problem in our contemporary culture, you know, those of us who are privileged to have plenty of material resources with collecting too much stuff mm. and, and with being dominated by an acquisitive kind of approach to our lives in which we are sometimes or even often trying to earn, to buy, you know, to acquire and, and to save and, and to stockpile hoping that will satisfy some kind of desire that we have and then needing to do the thing again. 
I am certainly someone who's caught up in that as well. I think that this is a shared aspect of American culture right now. And so I am not someone who, who would have turned immediately to thinking, let me write a book about stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I probably would have been kind of opposed to that, to that idea of focusing on things. But there are at least two important aspects of um, thingness or material culture that I learned through this book, which I think actually give us perspective on our contemporary desire to shop and to um, collect things. And one of those is that for African-Americans in the period on which this book focuses, principally the 19th century and early 20th century, having things was no small matter. And in fact, most Black people before the Civil War who lived in this country were themselves defined as things, considered to be possessions, owned, sold, traded, passed down through wills. And the the thingness of their lives was an abuse against them. Black people were considered to be possessions and they had a very hard time obtaining possessions. They weren't usually able to earn money. When they could earn money, it was very difficult to do so. They had to overwork. They had to get permission from their enslavers to be able to work outside of that particular household or that plantation environment and maintain a part of their earnings. So they had to work a double, triple, quadruple time to earn just a little bit of money. They could try to acquire things, but the things could be taken away from them. And even after emancipation, Black people had a hard time holding down to things because many Black people were deeply impoverished. Mm-hmm. They couldn't maintain their things. They were constantly in motion because they were running from racial violence, often trying to move to greater opportunity, and they couldn't hold on to the things that they had even managed to acquire. So things held important value for Black people who recognized who recognized a thin line between actual things defined as such and their own persons and their own bodies, and who also had a very hard time acquiring things and holding on to things and, and preserving things. So we're talking about a really different kind of relationship to objects in this period for Black people than in our moment and for many of us. In addition, material objects, things, stuff became very important in this book. And I learned about them in this book in a different way because I was brought closer to the recognition that it really is out of material sources and items and objects that we as human beings fashion our lives and make sense of our lives and communicate about our lives. I mean, even right now, you and I are having this conversation and uh, we both have things behind us. You have books behind you. You have a family photo behind you. I have a quilt behind me. And um, 
I don't know if you can see the top of this. This is a photograph behind me. Um, and the top uh, of the quilt on that shelf, these are all objects that uh, belonged to my grandmother who has now passed on, but, but you know, I cherish these things yeah. from her. They help me to know who I am and they signal something about who I am or something that I hope to be or hope to project to others. And I think likewise for the books behind you. Yeah. Things are a part of the material that we use to make our lives. And I know that seems like an obvious statement. You know, we look around and we see, yeah, there's a lot, there's a door, you know, here's a water bottle, here's a book, um, here's a backpack. It doesn't belong to me, it belongs to my daughter, but here's, you know, here's another object here. And all of these things support us, they make our lives possible, they remind us of who we want to be, and they convey who. Uh, we hope we are to others. That is a really important meaning of things, of stuff that I learned through working with this stack. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to turn to audience questions in just a moment. But first, before we do, I, I would love for you to talk about the contents of the sack and the significance of them. The contents of this sack are magical in a way. I think they're sacred in a way to me go. They're also very basic. And I think they address um, the most foundational needs that Rose may have thought Ashley would have as Ashley was being sold away from her. So, the sack itself is a thing, and, and the sack itself was one of the items that Rose was passing on, and it included a dress. A dress is a very important object, as I tried to explore and, and to explain in the book, for all the things that to not only a young girl, but also a young enslaved girl. Wow. Rose also packed food. She packed nuts, and I learned through researching um, this book that the pecans she packed are a very special kind of nut. But as I started doing this work and thinking about it more and more to me go, I, I came to realize Rose must have been a brilliant person, right? <laughs> but everything she packed has so many additional meanings and so many uses. And I can't even imagine how she got her hands on these things. But she packed the dress. She packed pecans, which are incredibly nutrient rich, it turns out, and which also were a luxury good in, um, in the area where Rose and Ashley lived in South Carolina. So it, so the pecans could have been traded for other items. They could have been used for their exchange value. Rose also packed a braid of her own hair. And um, this is a hauntingly beautiful object that was in the sack. This is the object that I think comes closest to that idea of the sacred that I mentioned, because it was in many ways, a spiritual connector to Rose herself. It was a part of Rose's own body. And it also, I think, represented Rose's autonomy and her independence. And it represented the message of that independence that was being conveyed to Ashley because uh, technically Rose didn't own her hair. She didn't own her body. 
her enslaver did. So for Rose to actually cut her own hair and to give it to her daughter meant taking possession of her own body, taking possession of that body back for the purposes of reminding her daughter that they would be connected, which I think is just an incredibly rich thought and action. And of course, the sack contained love, and there's so many ways that we can think about that. Um, in the embroidered inscription on the sack, love is at the center of the embroidery, and it's in large red letters. So love was clearly very important to Ruth and to her memory of the exchange. And I think that we can infer it was important to Rose because this was a story that would have been handed down across the generations. Hmm. Thank you. I, I want to uh, allow the audience to have a voice here through their questions. And there's a question here about your writing process um, where there is an audience member who's very curious about it. Um, he or she notes that the citations and footnotes were amazingly comprehensive and helpful um, is one thing. So you might talk about uh, why you took that approach. Uh, and then another um, question there is about whether you write in one voice through and then another voice personally. Hmm, okay, very interesting questions about writing, which I hmm. uh, appreciate and, and I wanna think those through. First of all, thank you for reading the footnotes. I love it when I hear that people are reading the footnotes <laughs> um, because I, I do spend a lot of time on them and I do work hard on them. And there is a reason for that. I tried to write this book in a way that was creative. And I think that historical work can and should be creative. At the same time, I feel that we as scholars of history have entered into an agreement with our readers. And that agreement says, we will ask questions, we will look for all the sources that we can get our hands on, all the sources that we can find. We will um, read them or listen to them or, or view them as faithfully as we can and try to arrive at our best interpretation, whether or not we like what that interpretation says. The way that we show our work in that process and the way that we express good faith with our interlocutors and our readers, I think, is to indicate our process throughout the work. So I do this at the beginning of the book, at the end, in an essay at the very end, and also in places throughout, and especially through the footnotes, because I, I want people who are willing to give me their time which is of course um, very valuable and very precious. I want them to be able to follow me and to question me and to track what it is that I'm saying and, and asserting and to decide whether or not they think that it's convincing and to look it up themselves if they would like to. Um, I think part of what I'm saying in that response is that I am very committed to the work that we both engage in Tomiko as scholars of the past and to what we promise when we take up that work. And even when I try to write creatively and sometimes poetically, 
as I attempted in this book, as a way to try to just come close to the beauty of the thing itself. I know that I cannot achieve that. I mean, the sack is astonishing, but I wanted the writing to try to at least show respect for its beauty. Even though I'm doing that in this book, I also thought it was very important to have that kind of nuts and bolts element that would show what it was that I attempted to do, who it was that influenced me, who were the scholars that I, that I read who were important, what was it that I couldn't find, where is it that I was speculating, and that I gave people the information they might need to pursue those sources on their own. On the question of writing in a different voice in various parts of the book, um, hmm. Well, I feel that this book is all me. I don't know that I have different voices. We have, we have different modes. And I will say that this has been the hardest book that I have ever written. Hmm. This book was so hard to write for me. I think it has gone through seven drafts. And um, when I say drafts, I mean deep revisions and rewrites. As I try to, to kind of get the structure right and, and try to get the four corners of the puzzle right to we go and, and try to um, write creatively, but then to pull that back when it wasn't working. The question of whether or not to write personally in the book was one that really came to me more toward the end of probably the second draft. And I was really encouraged to write personally by fellows uh, at Harvard University, at the Hutchins Center, who were really drawn to the spiritual aspects of the history and the emotional aspects of the history after they heard me give a talk about it, and just encouraged me to tell more about my family story. And so I did that and tried to contain some of that. I mean, you'll find that that aspect of the book really at the beginning and maybe in, in some of the images and the captions. But I don't think it was a different voice. I think it was all my voice writing in, in a different mode. Mm -hmm. One, uh, let's call it um, an academic creative mode or um, a poetic mode of historical writing and the other more of a personal mode of things that I had learned through my own family's oral history. Mm. So um, let me connect that thought to uh, another question, which is a viewer asking if you can say a little bit about the quilt that's hanging behind you, which you said came oh, from. Oh, yes. Um, that question comes at the perfect time of our conversation. So thank you for whoever submitted that. This is a part of what I discuss that stems from my, my family history, my family oral history in the introduction. Um, this quilt was made by a great aunt of mine and uh, her name was Margaret and she was a hero to my grandmother. I never met this great aunt, but my, my grandmother adored her. She was my grandmother's big sister. And um, my grandmother gave my great aunt Margaret, her sister Margaret credit for basically saving the spirit of their family when their family was um, run off of their family farm in Mississippi, Mississippi, and um, 
then became impoverished. And what my grandmother credits her sister Margaret with is saving one cow, just saving one cow from their farm and taking it to a neighbor's house so that they could later recover it. Uh, this quilt was my grandmother's until she passed away. And then it was passed down to me. And it just, it moves me because it reminds me of those women. It, it, it brings them to the fore of my thoughts. It makes me appreciate how, how far I have come and how far my generation has come from the times that they lived in when they had to be terrified of a particular kind of racial violence, which was allowed and accepted by society. We still see racial violence, of course, but now it is supposed to be against the law. So uh, this quote is very special to me and um, it's a reminder, it's a touchstone of those women and um, of the ways in which they lived brave lives. Well, I'm afraid we're out of time. Uh, as we're ending, I wanna say thank you so much, Taya, for being with us today and for sharing this really important uh, and personal history with us. I also want to thank the audience for your excellent questions. Thank you again for joining us. That's it for this episode of Louisville Reads. Join us next episode following the same line of exploration into contemporary black letters, reading and reviewing hell of a book a novel by Jason Mott. This is Louisville Reads. I'm Dave Campbell. Thanks for listening.